Vodcast. Today we will be reviewing a case of a patient having an anaphylactic reaction. Real Emergency is produced in partnership with Hamtevi, Real DX, and 410 Medical. It's powered by Prodigy EMS, and I am Hillary Gates, the Director of Educational Strategy at Prodigy EMS. All episodes of Real Emergency are available to you for CAPSI credit on Prodigy EMS. For those of you watching live today who want to earn an hour of CE, there will be a QR code on the slides that you can scan with your phone, and it'll direct you to Prodigy EMS to collect that credit. Be sure that you all check us out on uh, YouTube and your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to follow us and like us on Real Emergency, uh, the pages on Facebook and Twitter. Let me briefly introduce our three resident experts starting with David Spiro, who is a pediatric emergency physician and professor at the University of Arkansas Medical System. He's also the chief medical officer of RealDX. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency physician and EMS physician and the founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards Incorporated. Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he is a medical director with WakeMed Mobile Critical Care. Dr. Peel is also the founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical Innovation. We are honored to have a special guest here today to help lend expertise to the discussion, and that is Zach Dunlap, who is the cr clinical director at Cypress Creek EMS in Houston. Zach has worked as a paramedic, flight paramedic and training coordinator, and prides himself on focusing on excellent patient care delivered through innovative approaches. Zach is a uh, participant in this call. He was a provider on the call, so he has uh, firsthand knowledge of what happened. And let's get on to the case. You're going to be watching the EMS, EMS clinicians respond to a man having an allergic reaction at an allergy clinic of all places. Many of us have experience responding to clinics of various kinds, and we'd love to hear your experiences with how to best partner with these locations. Let's watch as Zach and his crew immediately recognize the severity of this reaction and they treat it accordingly. And we'll get started. Over to you, Peter. All right. Awesome. Hillary, thank you so much. Uh, welcome, everybody. We have 115 people showed up today, which is great. Uh, Mark, David, Zach, uh, so happy to be with you guys. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. And um, the cool thing is, is that um, this past Friday, when I was riding out with, uh, with one of my crews, uh, lo and behold, we had a very similar case to what you're gonna see here. And for as long as I've been teaching anaphylaxis, I never really had the actual vid like a video of the real deal where you have to dump the entire kitchen sink. Um, and we're very, very fortunate to have Zach kind of joining our team here. Uh, he's providing us with amazing videos. And I, I really truly feel that as you watch his video, I think all of your hearts are going to go a little fast, uh, which is good because it's the real thing. But um, I want everyone to kind of think through as you're watching this, what you would be doing if it was your own agency. And then as we discuss, we'll kind of go through and, and, and go through the case in more detail. So um, let's go ahead and get the video started. And Zach, we're going to have you pull it, pull us through this case. Take it while, while Zach is uh, getting ready and we're getting set up, uh, we want this to be interactive. We started this because we're having fun. This is a fun hour for us. We're honored to be here. Um, this is a learning opportunity for us all. So um, please comment in the chat box or, or pipe up and say something. And uh, we're all here to have fun together and learn. And it's a safe environment. 
That's great. Thank, thanks, David, for that. And I appreciate that, uh, for saying that. And um, Zach, before you get the video going, you want to just give people just a brief setup and then we can get, you can take us through the video. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Hillary did a great job of the initial introduction, but basically the crew is responding to an allergy clinic for an allergic reaction. Um, the only thing that they know is that he has received um, epi and this is what they walk into. Okay. He's given three rounds of epi. Okay. 0.3 times three med treatment. Is that just albuterol or? Just albuterol. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. And his O2 set is? 61. 61 right now? Yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead and clear the stretcher. I'm going to try and get him on the stretcher. The first thing here is that I would ask everyone, is, is this guy sick or not sick? Your initial impression. Um, three, three rounds of epi already. And then you heard his oxygen saturation is 60%. And he he's not able to even one to two word uh, sentences. So um, he's in Trendelenburg and they, they were unable to obtain a blood pressure at this time. Hey, Zach, so I, I have a question that I'm sure is on everyone's mind is, this guy shows up at a clinic. He obviously didn't go there in anaphylaxis. How did he end up like this? Do you have any idea? So what the crew was told is he was at the allergy clinic getting tested to see what he could potentially be allergic to. And clearly they found out whatever that was. It was one of the allergy tests that they, they give and see what comes back that you, you know, have hypersensitivity to. And it, it sent him into full bore acute anaphylaxis. Feet elevated, get a blood pressure. We can't get a blood pressure because it fell right off on him. Okay. Hi there. Hi there. Hi there. Hi. Okay. All right. Have you looked at his airway? No. Okay. So when, what time did you give him this? 10 minutes ago. Yeah. Okay. Sir, are you able to get in? Okay. I need to try and sit him up. What's his name? Okay. Sit up. Has he been sick or around anybody but sick? No. I asked him all that earlier today. I gave him the injection and he said no. So the question, like Dr. says, what what is your initial treatment plan? This guy has to be treated very, very quickly to determine the course of his outcome. So, so Zach, Zach um, that, that I, want to, I do want to get to that, but I, I do want to, um, there's a lot of great questions coming in. And, you know, what is one of the first things that we recognize that your crew did? And I, I want to see if other people can kind of jump in and say this. What, what, what did the crew do immediately once they walked in and saw this guy laying on his back in distress, one word sentences, saying he can't breathe? What did they do? Sat him, him up. Sat him up. <laughs> yep. And so uh, why, why is that important? Airway. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, I think all of us, yeah, I, I think, I think that all of us, when you when you've seen these people who are in severe respiratory distress, everything's closing up. They have upper airway swelling and edema. The last position you want these folks in is laying on their back. And so just the fact of sitting him up and allowing him to maybe even lean forward um, and help himself open his own airway is is paramount. And I'm sure. So Zach, I'm not sure if it's if it's easily seen in the video, but once he, he sat up, did, did that seem to help his condition uh, immediately somewhat? I, I, I think to him it probably did. 
that there wasn't a, a change <laughs> in vital signs, but I'm sure he felt a lot right. better at least. And the clinic staff seemed to say to the crew that um, he was lying down because they couldn't get a blood pressure. So they, they did the uh, lay person's blood pressure challenge, which is put the legs up. Um, again, kind of an odd uh, scenario, but this is where we want to talk about um, working with the clinic staff and what ki kinds of information do you need and what kinds of things should you not sort of focus on. Um, but all of you are asking great questions and saying awesome things in the, in the chat. Keep it up. And then, and then Zach, and I think um, you know, those are great points. Let's also give credit where credit is due. The, the, the folks at the clinic did give him three doses of Epi-IM, correct? That's correct. They gave him oxygen. He, well, he's on albuterol driven by O2, right? Um, and if I had to imagine, they've reached the limit of what they could provide at this clinic. Am I correct on that? That's correct. Do you have the times from the time of the call out to the time that you arrived on scene, just so everyone has an idea of how long has this guy been in this situation? Do you, do you have any sort of sense of that? Yeah, the response time um, looks to be about uh, five and a half minutes from the time of the call. So by the time the crew got there from this happened, we're probably almost 10 minutes in. Okay, good. And Someone asking is asking here, did, did the clinic start an IV for you guys or they don't have that ability? No, they didn't. And that's what's about to happen as you'll see in the next clip here. Uh, the paramedics gonna throw on uh, entitled CO2, another combi vent, um, and then get IV access to start administering uh, IV EPI. Yeah, before we go to the uh, clip, uh, just one really important thing, when it's not your equipment, check to make sure it's working. And it looks like Sam had an experience maybe where the O2 tank could have been empty or close to empty. So always get them over to your O2. I love that, Sam. Love it. Maybe on you so real quick. I'm sorry, he was again, how old? 49. 49. Okay, so we're going to get you a steroid and get you some Benadryl, okay? Medicus, yeah, go ahead and have District 52 get around possible RSI. Great, great questions coming in. Um, and you can see she's the, the CPAP. That's what you're going to see that they're about to go to. Um, she does listen to lung sound several times and he's not moving anything at all. Uh, I, I experienced the same thing when I got there. Uh, and then if you heard what she said there, go ahead and send a, an additional supervisor because she sees how bad he is. His sats are still in the 60s, still no blood pressure. And she recognizes that he, he may potentially need to be intubated. I, you know, I know Mark uh, and, and David, oh, we, we always harp on this is, um, yes, this person may have an airway issue that may need to be addressed. Um, and I know you guys are going to address it in a minute, but the patient's got to be resuscitated uh, first, right? Because obviously if this person has poor vital signs and then you go to take his airway, um, then just like a severe asthmatic, they will just, they'll just die on you on the spot. So, um, you know, I want everyone to start thinking before we watch the, the you know, this video through, what things, and I see a lot of people are putting in things in the, in, in the chat, but try to think of what your priorities would be in order um, as far as you have someone who's hypotensive, who's hypoxic, who can't really breathe, already got epi three times. What are, what are your next things to do here 
the IV is being placed. So what are some airway things you're gonna do? What are some um, fluid things you're gonna do? And then how are you gonna get this guy's blood pressure up? So I just wanted you guys to think of those things as a sequence uh, as you're looking at this video. Mark, you want to, Mark or David, you want to make any comments? Yeah, just a great point, just that we need to, obviously airway is his impending biggest problem, but uh, Michael just put in the chat, resuscitate before you intubate, and that would be my priority as well, because we could cause harm by intubating in the setting of anaphylactic shock. He needs volume and epi and oxygen and albuterol and airway almost all simultaneously. So, but <laughs> the resuscitate before you intubate principle applies in, trauma as we've talked about in our previous episodes and here as well. All right, excellent, awesome. All right, Zach, let's uh, right back to you, buddy. Where are we at, Seth, why? 84, relax, can we do? I'm actually gonna go ahead and get an IV on him, sir. I'm probably gonna go, he, we've already given him three. What's his heart rate? 426. Yeah, um, Sarah, go ahead and get the cap no for me. Not the cap no, the uh, CPAP. Uh, okay. We're going to try and go that route. Okay. Let me put your meds right here in your IV kit. Sweet. Thank you. Uh-huh. What were we, um, what were you guys giving him? Allergy shots. Allergy shots. Nothing particular? No. Okay. So she's doing a good job of getting access quickly. Um, his sats are still low. Um, but it's a tough situation to be in whenever you need to get his blood pressure up and you, you don't have access. And I think sometimes we forget how important that is and it can be tough in these types of situations when they're, when they're clamped down. Um, she did a really, really good job, I think, of prioritizing. In our system, we have to have two paramedics to be able to perform rapid sequence innovation. So she, she's thinking ahead. She's doing a good job of doing what she can now uh, and managing the patient the best you can. Uh, Zach, is it was it me or did I hear audible wheezing on this guy? Expiratory wheezes. Was that everyone's hearing that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, what I really like, and I think I want to bring attention to, is that you're in a very small room, right? She's keeping herself calm. Um, like it just kind of it, it feels almost just watching it a little claustrophobic. But the fact that she's taking care of business right now is, I think, a very, very important part of this whole thing. It goes back to there are certain things that need to be fixed right now, and this is one of those things. And so uh, just want to give you guys credit for staying there, being there, doing everything right where you find this guy before just saying, hey, let's just get this guy to the back of our, of our ambulance. And so you want to comment on that at all about how you guys practice with these specific types of calls? Absolutely. Take the care to the patient, no matter where the environment it is, where it is. Um, a lot of times we don't have enough time. You know, it's five minutes to get them on the stretcher, five minutes to get them out to the ambulance, five minutes to set up our equipment. And we're so far behind the eight ball now, when if we would have just went in, done it right then, we would have been able to prevent a lot of the issues that we see down, down the road. So they do a great job here. Uh, one question I'd like you to speak to is you heard her ask about what his heart rate was. So he's had three doses of epi. Um, is there a, is there a cutoff in your opinion? Is there some, what does that look like as far as how high their heart rate gets whenever you wouldn't give any more epi or you would then go to push dose epi? Yeah. So I think that, you know, in, in my protocol, and I think I'm reading other people here, um, I see a lot of people have three doses of epi in, in their protocol, pretty, pretty standard. Um, and then at least for me, 
and I think a lot of other protocols. Uh, and I want to discuss this a little later on because we, we do see an issue in what's the next form of epinephrine people would use. There's massive fusion in, in the guidelines because of how the guidelines are written. There's massive confusion with what people will utilize, whether you use what type of epi that you would utilize safely. And so I have a couple of slides we'll go through a little bit later um, because the type of epi you give could make the difference in the outcome of the patient and how fast the patient turns around. So I'll save some of that for a little bit later, but after three doses of intramuscular epi, I think most people on this call would agree that it's time to move to the IV form of epi. The question is how to do that. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Oh, sorry, but I just used my, uh, I just used my threes. So you got a chance. It's going to be really tight, but it's going to help out, okay? That's all you measure all of it also. Sir, we're going to do a fluid bag, too. So Zach, you want to pause it? Yeah, you, you, you want to pause and, um, and, and, and describe what you decided to do here and why. Yep, so I had just uh, showed up and recognized that we're at least 10 minutes in and we are not improving as much as we should be. Our SATs are still low. Um, I, I had grabbed the CPAP, we threw that on, continued the comm event. Um, and then you heard the paramedics say, we're gonna start a fluid bag, so that was, that was what we were doing. And then I'm setting up the epi drip. So we gave uh, a bolus of IV epi and then we did the epi drip starting at 10 mics. Uh, and then my thought process was by the time that we get out to the ambulance, if he is not turning around, that we're not, we're probably going to have to go ahead, uh, resuscitate him further and move down the intubation path. You can still see there how much trouble he's having trying to breathe. You can, you can't hear the wheezing as much now because of the CPAP. Um, but I didn't like that we were not turning around as quickly as we, as we should have been. Uh, and so we chose to go down the aggressive route with IV epi. So, so, so Zach, there are probably people watching and, and, and thinking, you know, this is an obstructive disease, right? And, and, and you're, you're giving him CPAP. So, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, Zach, you want to describe that or Mark or David, but you know, the, the, and maybe I'll throw it to you, Mark, because I know probably in the ICU. Um, Mark, did you want to describe, especially like in the ICU, um, as far as positive pressure, yeah. CPAP in this particular case, how, right. how that would help this person out? It seems counterintuitive that in an obstructive, an expiratory obstruction, or the patient's having trouble, he has intense bronchospasm, right? So presumably alveoli are distended, the small airways are constricted and he can't, he's actually pushing to get the air out. That's the, that's the physiology of asthma, COPD, bronchiolitis in a baby, trouble getting air out. So why would you want to force air in at that point? It seems counterintuitive, but we find, and I can't tell you, Peter, the data, so much data on this as uh, experience, but paradoxically positive pressure can help. And I think it helps by two mechanisms. One is he's 
to 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 gain any additional tidal volume, he has to inspire enough to continue to distend open those little alveoli that are already over distended. So we need some power to do that. And then the end expiratory pressure supplied by the CPAP or BiPAP can actually distend open those little constricted airways and, and then help him to exhale. So he can exchange gas better in that he's able to have a little a positive pressure applied. So does it help every time? I don't know, but it's what we go to down the line for severe asthma and um, anaphylaxis. And I just wanted to also comment on the epi. It sounds like, wow, three doses of epi already are in, but we're 10 minutes in, probably 15 minutes from the first dose. The half-life of that drug is less than five minutes. So most of that's gone, right? So Zach, I think, did the right thing, giving a, yet another dose and starting the drip. So sometimes we think, wow, they've had so much already. Do I really want to give more? Most of the effect is worn off in this, in this patient already. And then, and then, Mark, those are great comments. And you know, uh, David, if you want to chime in as well, but is there a number? Is there what is the pressure that maybe we shouldn't be exceeding when, when we're giving positive pressure? Um, and I know that my protocols, we and, and I would love to hear Dr. Dorsett also, uh, Maya, if you want to jump in as well. But um, I definitely want to hear that because we we have different ranges for different types of things. So, uh, David, Maya, anybody want to comment on values for CPAP? So um, with CPAP, I think one of the good comments that was in the chat was talking about balancing uh, the situation of hypotension with the CPAP. And I, I think that is really an astute um, observation because we are playing a balance, right? This patient is in a distributive shock. His preload is going to be down. So at the unfortunately, right, he has both um, respiratory failure and distributive shock. And so we have to treat both of them, but you need to be thinking about how you're going to be replacing that preload as much as possible and then titrating the CPAP up from five to above. Within our protocols, we don't have guidelines because um, basically I don't think I can write like one size guideline. I think people have to understand the, the pathophysiology. Um, and within our, I think what's so interesting about this case is normally, right, when we write scenarios or we test people, we have fresh anaphylaxis and people usually by the end of the case get through, you know, the two doses, maybe the third dose of epi, but on this patient, you're already starting so downstream on this protocol that you're really sort of challenging um, sort of the everything that you can do and throwing the kitchen sink at it. So and um, Maya, yeah. we have two great questions about CPAP in this setting with this hypotensive patient. So Kim asks, does CPAP not further impede the return of blood flow to the heart by nature of increased in in intrathoracic pressure? And then Brett asks about CPAP being contraindicated in a hypotensive patient. Can you talk about that? So I think, right, things are very often there's relative contraindications that are not absolute contraindications. So in general, in the absence of this particular situation or a situation of uh, massive hypoxia, then I would say, um, yeah, in general, I'm gonna try and avoid positive pressure ventilation. But we all know that there are situations where patients still stand to benefit from positive pressure ventilation. And it is our job to anticipate that as a consequence and mitigate it as much as possible with the other interventions that we're doing, including things like replacing fluids and starting an epi drip and everything else. I 100% I agree, Maya, with you. And I think we have the same discussions in cardiac arrest, right? Where people talk about using a peep valve. So I just think that, you know, five is probably a great place to start. I think you should titrate accordingly, but there is that balance between stenting those airways open, like Mark said, and, you know, 
going too much so that you're now in, you know, inhibiting the, the RV from filling because this person already, already has air stacking. If you look at a chest x-ray of these people, their heart is so thin because the, the, the lungs are just squeezing it down. And so I think the fluids are huge. It's distributive shock. And you, you, yes, you don't want to make it worse with CPAP, but the right amount of CPAP will definitely help the patient. And I think what, you know, Zach, what you and your team did here is just beautifully threading the needle here to ultimately avoid the need for intubation because that's really when everything starts to hit the fan. Right. You have to go down that route. I would add that as well. Like his intrathoracic pressure is high on its own already because what you just mentioned, Peter, he has, he has air trapping. So adding some CPAP may paradoxically help that. I agree with everyone's thoughts that adding positive pressure is risky, which is why we want to be careful uh, when intubating him or maybe not do it if possible, especially if it was an asthmatic. Um, but I, I think it is a, it's a difficult question, but it seems to me that the CPAP may be helping. And Zach, maybe you'll tell us what happened with his pressure. Yeah, so I just want to mention one thing. I don't want to minimize this discussion on CPAP because it's amazing. Um, but Mary talked about put in mag and was thinking solumedrol. I don't want to underemphasize the need to address the inflammatory yep. process that's happening in this patient and to start solumedrol early. Uh, starting solumedrol, there's a massive inflammatory response that's happening in multiple organ systems, i.e. this is anaphylaxis. And getting the solumedrol on early uh, as a as a pediatric EM physician, is is so incredibly important, uh, and ultimately could end up saving his life on some level. So, just wanted to throw that in there. I just want to make one more comment about the the interplay with correcting hypoxia, um, because I think one of the things we often forget is that hypoxia is a pulmonary vasoconstrictor, and pulmonary vasoconstriction is the afterload to the right side of the heart, and so there is you know, correcting hypoxia aggressively is also a way to reduce afterload on the right side of the heart and improve like forward flow through the system. And so there is also lots of things at play, but potentially also a hemodynamic benefit um, to doing that. Good point. You know, what I love about that is that it goes back to the theory of ventilation, oxygenation and ventilation have probably more to do with flow than anything else, right? So opening up those lung beds, um, you know, by, by relieving the hypoxia is a critical thing in, in, in this case and also in cases of cardiac arrest. So I, I love that comment and hopefully people take that one to heart. A little bit thumbs up or worse? Okay, good. So at this point, he's had the epi, the fourth dose of epi. He's on an epi drip at 10 mics. He's got 125 of solumedrol. 50 of Benadryl, and he's on his third combi vent. Um, I think we had, we're up to 84% on his SATs. And, and to Dr. Dorsett's point, the, in, in my mind, it was his SATs are 60. I have to get them up. That we're, he's gonna, that's going to throw him into cardiac arrest, pro, in my mind, probably sooner than his blood pressure. If I get his SATs up, I'll get an improvement in blood pressure. And, and the, the balance is I'm giving him pressors with epi. If I if I get his stats up and I still have a low blood pressure, I can always fix that with pressors if I need to, but I've got to get his stats up first. And that wasn't working with just a regular combi vent or non-rebreather. So that's, that's why we went aggressive with CPAP. Um, and at this point, after he's had all the meds, um, I've got a heart rate of 135, SpO2 of 84%, and you just heard him um, give a thumbs up. Uh, we have good pleth waveform. 
and we have a good uh, inside CO2 uh, waveform capnography waveform now as well. Hey Zach, Zach, um, before we move to the before we press play here, give us a sense of how long have have you been with the patient or your team from from that very beginning where we we saw you guys enter into the scene. How many minutes has it been? Do you know? Yeah, so we're looking at right at uh, fourteen minutes at this point. Wow. So I just want everyone just to take stock of that number right there. How much was how much has been done within fourteen minutes? I mean, this is high performance, folks, and this is and and you're still in the same exact location. The guy's giving you a thumbs up. Um, I will tell you, everything could have gone south just if you would have, you know, again moved the patient or decided not to do things this quickly. So kudos to you and your entire team. This is um, this is incredible work. Great and job. I say, and I would say the core of the high performance, and this is very high level. The core of the high performance here is that everyone is communicating. Communication is the essence of medicine. And I love the way the team in a clinic environment, they're in a foreign place, not whatever, but they are communicating well with each other. Just wanted to compliment the team on that. Great comment. I have to add one more physiology nerd question in here or comment in here and in, in kind of in defense of the CPAP. I'm amazed with his mental status improving in the thumbs up sign after however many minutes it's been, five minutes. And I think that's a combination of sats are improved, but I bet you he's ventilating better, meaning his CO2 was probably a hundred before, right? And now it's something closer to normal and his mentation is better, which means he cooperates with the care better, which means we have more time to deal with the next step. So I think that CPAP, in addition to the other therapies, obviously was pretty key. Speaking of which, Zach, did, did you have an end title number on him prior to all this? Or like, was there a number like Mark mentioned it was, it was bounce, yeah, it was bouncing around. It wasn't, we could never get a, a, an accurate one, but it would bounce to 60, 70, and then it would go to, you know, it, it, just, we, we, it was really difficult to get a good reading, but it was high when it would read in the 60s and 70s. Remember, in obstructive lung disease, you have a lot of dead space, and the arterial CO2 would probably be 30 to 40 points higher than your end title. So it's not a, it's a good thing to trend, but it doesn't tell you what's actually going on inside. So just remember that can be falsely low on the end title. And, and, and I, I think it's also very important to mention that if anyone on this call, if your end title or your, your, your PSCO2 goes up to 70, 80, 90, you become altered. And then you start to circle the drain even more. So where, where you guys caught this guy was like really as he was circling the drain. And as soon as he gets out, he gets to 90, 100, and now he's unconscious. And when you, you know, imagine arriving on scene, and I'm sure a lot of people on this call have, have seen this, where you arrive on scene, the patient's already unconscious. And it just takes those couple of minutes of not turning the guy around, O2, CO2, and so forth, um, until they end up in that situation. So again, you guys pick them up really in the nick of time here. Let's talk about the um, mechanics of the epi drip because those there are agencies who are just starting these um, and agencies who have done them for a while. So, Michael, I'm sorry, Chris asks recommendations for mixing. Uh, Chris, we got a one milligram one to one in a hundred ml bag. Start at uh, one ml per minute. Um, Zach, how do you guys mix your? How do you do that's, your drips? That's it. That's it. Put in a hundred cc bag with a sixty drop set. Uh, you know, drop every second. If I want 10 mics, drop every two seconds. And, and if I want to lower, make it simple. 
Um, and then Dr. Antevi is going to talk about push dose epi, which I love. It's, it's super easy. It's fantastic to, to use. Um, and we would have gone down that route with him once we go to the ambulance. So in this next point that we're going to go into, remember, I've, I've left the clinic and I've gone out to the ambulance to prep for innovation. And because in my mind, he was not, he was not getting better because we've given him everything that I felt like we could give him that we have in our protocols. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that Dr. Antevi would, would add at this point, but as far as what we have, I felt like we had the kitchen sink was dumped. And if he hadn't turned around by the time we went to the ambulance, then we were going to have to uh, intubate him. So I, when he arrives to the ambulance, I'm still assuming that he is satur in the sixties and he's not turned around. Right. So I'm surprised that no, no one has mentioned this drug yet, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when it comes to RSI, but there is one, there is one peculiar drug that may, that, that may be next on the list. Go ahead. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> we know what you're thinking. There it is. Okay. So, Hey, I, I do say it in the video. I said, give me your keys so I can go get the ketamine. Yeah, I heard. Okay. It. I love it. On the arts. Going. Yep. Zach, it sounds like we're hearing less wheezing at this point. Is that, are we right? Much less wheezing. And you'll see as we go to the next clip, when we get in the ambulance, I listened um, and it sounded totally different. Um, much better. There was still, there was still a little bit of, of wheezing that I could pick up, but he was actually moving here. Um, the, the first time I listened to him, I could hear the wheezing but it was very quiet, which concerned me. Um, it got a little bit louder as he got better. Uh, and then by the time we were in the ambulance, it was just a little bit of wheezing and good, good air movement that you could, you could auscultate. I want to listen to him again. There's definitely his colors coming back. How are you feeling? A little bit on the respiratory stuff, what do you think? A little bit. So there you go. Um, I innovation stuff is set up on the on the counter. The ketamine is out. Um, I hadn't drawn it up yet, so we didn't have to waste it. Um, but we're we're ready, and all of a sudden they load him up into the ambulance, and I, I listen, she listens, his sats are now 95%. Uh, he's saying that he feels better. Uh, and then in the last part there, you can hear him uh, start talking actually almost in full sentences, saying how much better he feels. You can understand him. His heart rate is still about in the 120s and his blood pressure uh, had come up uh, to about 100 systolic. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I think some, some other physiology that I wanted to talk about now that you're mentioning the word RSI. And I know Mark Mark is like the king. If, if anyone wants to go see a, a ketamine-only intubation, I mean, that's your guy. But why do I bring that up? Is because um, this guy, we, we talked about the, the RV is having difficult filling because of the fact that he's stacking. 
the only thing that's helping him actually bring fluid, bring blood into his RV is his deep inspiratory breath that's causing negative pressure. So his negative pressure that he's breathing in on, even though it's causing more air stacking, is keeping him alive, right? As soon as you give this guy, you paralyze him, you take away that negative pressure, they die right in front of you, right? Unless you've resuscitated this, this guy prior, right? So when, when we all say ketamine and we all laugh and we say ketamine, it's a great drug, but I, I want everyone to think that just because you give ketamine doesn't mean you give a paralytic. And I think that's it. And so I have in my protocol that if you ever go down this route of potentially needing to go down the ketamine route, then highly consider a ketamine only intubation. Now people are gonna fall off of their chairs. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pass over to you, Mark, and talk about your, your thoughts on, you have somebody that you've given ketamine to, are you gonna go the proverbial all the way to innovate this guy? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a quick comment and then open up to, I think we have a lot of folks and they wanna add in some comments here. And I'm hoping Jeff Jarvis is not on this call because he would, he's gonna counter me if I, on my ketamine only comments here, but the, physio the physiology is that is what you described. So he, yes, he has high intrathoracic pressure. He has vasodilatory shock. So his preload is low. We need to give him fluid. I, I saw someone uh, mention that we need to be careful about fluids in this patient. Pulmonary edema is not his problem. It's bronchospasm and uh, not as much alveolar edema. So giving some fluid to give him preload is important. When we take away his his respiratory drive, then as you mentioned, he stops inspiring, number one. So he's not drawing blood into the thorax and into the RV. And then he stops also exhaling, meaning his CO2 is going to rapidly climb because he can't exhale. He can't ventilate well. So the paralytic in this case is dangerous for a couple of reasons. Then lastly, as soon as his CO2 continues to climb, what happens to his pH? It's probably already 7.1. You paralyze him. And in the minute it takes to intubate him, his pH his CO2 is now 150 and his pH is lower and lower in the setting of already uh, shock state. So it's a difficult case in which to pair to do a traditional RSI. If you're able to give ketamine, and I don't know what the right dose for him is, Peter, and I'll take your comments on this, but maybe 100 um, in him. Um, and he's able to continue to spontaneously ventilate, ventilate with oxygen going through his cannula. And you can slip in a video scope like Zach has in his truck and intubate him spontaneously breathing, you may save a cardiac arrest in this case. Do I have data on this? No. Um, is it how I try to practice? Yes. And I'm, I'm open to others, yours and others' comments on that concept. But just think that RSI in this case is not benign. I think, I haven't watched the video here. I think we, I think Zach and his crew spared him the intubation, but should you have to do it, it's a risky procedure, especially if you paralyze. And then furthermore, apply positive pressure through the ET tube which is gonna be greater than the CPAP ever was, you further exclude venous return and can precipitate an arrest. So um, I'm open to anyone's right. feedback or criticism on that approach. Well, I mean, I definitely, I definitely wouldn't criticize that. I, I, would, I would agree with it. And I would say that ketamine, the, the beautiful thing about ketamine is that it doesn't inhibit your respiratory drive. And what you'll end up getting is someone's true respiratory drive while they're ketamized, if you will. Um, so it'll, it'll allow you to, you know, use the bronchodilatory uh, aspects of it. But, you know, just because you give ketamine in this particular case, if you did, it doesn't mean that you have to go all the way. And again, ketamine only intubation is probably not on your protocol. And many, many physicians uh, probably don't even do that. 
But I will tell you that um, th this and other, other patients like severe asthma would be great candidates for uh, ketamine and then intubating without a paralytic. So anyone else want to make a comment on that before we uh, move forward? All right, um, Zach, so you want to give us the, the final here. So this patient is now in route. Did you have to do anything else or and how did he, or is there another, a last clip? I'm not sure if there's another clip. Years old. So he was at the uh, allergy asthma doctor yeah. getting shots. He's been having shots for about six months now. Uh, today they were giving him just another shot. He began to have a reaction to it. Okay. Started having shortness of breath. Uh, increased how do you are, how do you no fever, right? Not coughing up. Anything? No cough, no fever. It was a standard. So Doc on Doc uh, prior to our arrival had given him one albuterol treatment. Okay. Uh, given him three doses of IM 0.3 epi. Okay. Uh, we found him O2 sets 82 percent. Um, but basically, he's able to move over to the bed on his own. When, if you remember in the beginning, he was laying, laying, couldn't do anything. He couldn't talk. He was laying flat. Um, and so we, there was no other um, medications given during transport. Um, and he, like I said, his vital signs improved. You wouldn't have, you would have never thought that he was as, as bad as he was in the beginning if you didn't see the video for yourself. Uh, and one question I had for you, Dr. Antevi, is I, I felt like in my mind, I was going to force, I wanted this guy to force us to intubate him. I didn't want to have to make that decision because it felt like it was so high risk. And so I, I was, felt like we were, had to give him every opportunity. And then it was going to be one of those ones where, do, what, at what point do you decide to take this specific patient's airway? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. I think that maximizing his resuscitation early is important. So, you know, for me, um, I would, as the IM epi is given, is being given, I'm giving them even racemic epinephrine. I'm giving them as much epi as I can, along with all the fluids to make sure that if I end up going that route, uh, that I will. I, I will tell you, knock on wood, in, in over 20 years, um, I've only had to do this. I've only had to intubate someone one time because it's the motto. You go to ask any ER doctor, it's you never want to intubate these people. It's almost like saying, um, you know, hey, if I were you, I would never do that. But we hit them with the kitchen sink and most of the time you're lucky. What I would say to answer your question is your, your PCO2 is a big number. Your O2 sat's another big number. And if they're in respiratory failure, and now they're at the point where they cannot ventilate, oxygenate on their own, and you have to do it for them, well, you have to do it for them. But before you get to that point, I would advise everyone to maximize early on and don't wait till the very end to say, oh, wait a minute, before we intubate them, let me go ahead and give my push presser or start my epi drip now. Hopefully you had done that along the way. And um, I'd love to bring in uh, David or Maya, or Mark, uh, any, any further comments on, on Zach's question? I would um, basically agree with everything you said. I think this case is a testament that airway management, sometimes your best airway management is aggressive treatment of the underlying condition. 
And if you focus too much about the procedure and what do I need for the procedure, it's anticipating that you might have to go down that route. But as far as like severe asthma anaphylaxis, I can agree with Dr. Antevi. I can count the number of times I've had to go down the algorithm where I ended up intubating. And those patients were all of a situation where I thought their risk of death from me not intubating um, was higher than their risk of death from me intubating them, which is actually a very uh, fine uh, benefit harm scenario in a patient like this. I think one of the things that's really key is the situation of the resuscitate before you move patient. And I think about this in the category of, you know, what does the patient need most? And is it something that I have? And if you focus too much that you think that they're, what they need most is this difficult airway intubation, you might go down this route that that might be, but, you know, more safely done in the other scenario, but you realize that what they need most is everything that's actually in the wheelhouse of the pre-hospital providers. And if they had moved to the ambulance before doing all those things, I think he would have been intubated because he would have gone to cardiac arrest. Now, I'm going I'm to throw an esoteric. That's a great, great comment, by the way. I'm going to throw an esoteric, not esoteric, but I'm going to throw one at you guys here. You get on scene. This guy's already in cardiac arrest. You, you, I'm just going to say magically now we have an ET tube and we're, you're, you're, bagging, you're bagging this guy and it's, and it's very tight. And now you're just noticing that you're basically filling up this huge balloon that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. What are some techniques that we can advise everyone here on the call today to help these people exhale when they're basically in arrest? Any, any, any thoughts on that? Anyone want to take that one? <laughs> Mark, I mean, Mark, Mark because, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying that, right, like, you know, you, you oftentimes are going to have to try and exhale for these you, people. You have to, right? it's almost like you need someone to initiate CPR. You, you have to actively exhale, Peter. Yeah, we got, someone we, has got to, Louise, we got Louise and Brian yep. talking about manually decompressing. Someone needs to stand up above the patient and with e after each bag breath, you're going to push it back out again. And I'll throw out a, a question to everyone. Why not go old school and put Epi straight down the tube in that case? So um, yep. that's kind of my practice in an asthmatic who's in this situation. And I don't, again, I don't know that it's evidence-based right or wrong, but to me that epinephrine is straight to the bronchi and re relax them and it's going to get into the circulation also. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my trick. My, my code dose goes down that, the tube in that case. Yep. That, 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 was, that was the pearl of the day. That was amazing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. That's great. I love that. Um, awesome. So what I think I'll do, because we, we only have 11 minutes left, is I'm going to I'm going to move over to my slides and just kinda, just take a couple of minutes and go over some push presser epi, go over some epi drip stuff just to uh, and just share some data that I think is a little bit important for everybody here. And Peter, uh, so, we have such a um, participatory audience today. Let's uh, leave a little bit of time for people yes, to sign yes. in uh, and unmute. because. Yeah. Uh, there are some clinicians on this call today. That's that's code for Peter. Don't keep talking. Okay, I got you. So, <laughs> in pre-house emergency care, they, they they put things like this out, right? And why would they put? And this is the whole article right here. It's basically give epinephrine. Why would the National Association of EMS Physicians, you know, kind of put this forward? And it's it's because of the things like this, which is article after article that is done in EMS shows that we always start with, not always, that we tend to want to start with Benadryl. Let's take a moment today to put Benadryl first to rest, 
right? Forever and ever and go with epi. And this, this says epi sub Q, your protocol hopefully says epi IM lateral phi. That's the ideal situation. And then I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit about epi IV, which I think people make mistakes on. Cause remember these people are not in cardiac arrest. So we don't wanna give the cardiac arrest version of epi. So th this is, this is a, you know, um, very fast. I'll just kind of be very quick here. On the left-hand side is, you know, the formulation that you give epi IM for people who are alive intramuscular, move over one. There is a formulation of epi that you give for people who are dead. And, and now we call it one milligram and 10 ml. We don't, we don't use the one to 10,000 old slide. I get it. Now, the only two ways epis are packaged commercially is these two ways. Look at the right side, this blue box. These are for, this is how you give epi IV to an alive person. It doesn't exist. You can't go buy it. You have to make it. So what's in red here, the cardiac arrest epi is not meant for, for, for severe anaphylaxis. It's just not. And I see a lot of protocols which have this. And I'll show you, I'll give you the data. I'll put it in the chat a little later on. But you have three options. A dirty epi drip, or we call it one to 100,000. I'll go over that in a minute. Or you make an epi drip. And so look at, it's 10 mics per ml, 4 mics per ml, or 1 mic per ml. These are all in the same family. So I don't care how you cut it. It's just much more dilute to enable the person to tolerate that presser through an IV. So really quickly, if you wanna make push presser epi, you take, you, you, you waste, that should say nine, error Peter on Tevi, late slide, waste nine mLs of this, right? Just waste it. And then you refill nine ml using a, um, if you have a saline flush anymore, using a three-way stopcock. So now, Inside of this thing, and you should label it, you now have made a dirty epi drip or epi one to 100,000, which is 0.1 mLs in the 10 ml syringe. And then you just give an ml and you wait, right? And then depending on your protocol, some people say every minute, every two, every three, every five, you can just keep giving one ml at a time. And this is a bridge to a real epi drip that Zach and his team had, had done. Last but not least, there are practice parameters updates, and I'll put this in the chat so everyone can read this. Um, but please take a look at these late stage things that should all be in your protocol that you shouldn't wait to do. You should just do them early. So I'll put this in the chat. And Hillary, I think that was three minutes. And let's get now to the to the discussion um, of uh, of this case. Yeah, so great stuff, Peter. Um, people are aching for your slides. So um, if you can put those in the chat, awesome. Um, let's hear from everyone. Um, we've got lots of questions about terudoline, mag. Um, there was another medication that someone was asking about. Uh, well, we talked about Benadryl and selling Medrol. Um, let's hear from our, um, our experts and, and anyone else who wants to chime in about terudoline and magnesium. Terbutaline is, is definitely used in a lot of EMS systems. It's, it's not that common anymore, I would say, but uh, Mark, David, Maya, um, you know, some people just put 0.25 sub Q and, and they call it a day. Anybody want to comment on terbutaline? Terbutaline has been one of those drugs that has been in and out and in and out. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I just read a study uh, done by one of my colleagues at Vanderbilt because uh, magnesium has been a staple for us, at least for bronchospasm. And a uh, recent study that showed that kids with, that got magnesium had actually worse outcomes. 
So um, magnesium may actually be on the way out. More, more to come around that, but uh, doesn't make sense, right? Physiologically, you think it's a smooth muscle relaxant and would be beneficial. But in this particular study that was done out of Vanderbilt, maybe not so much. So, and the other, the cost of magnesium is hypotension, right? Because it's a smooth muscle relaxer. So in this patient, it may be detrimental. I don't, I don't know if I'd use it or not, but it wouldn't be my go-to in this patient. It's a great point. And, 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 and David, I read that study and I, I think that there, there were a lot of issues with that study. So, you know, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater just oh, yet. No, I just, right, I just, right, right, I right. just, I'm not saying take it out of your protocol. I'm just saying that this is the most up-to-date research and uh, we're always continuing to look at, at studies and sure. yes. uh, one study yes. doesn't change behavior, but just to throw it out there. Yeah. About three people emailed me that study and they're like, are you taking out mag? <laughs> yeah, it's not one study to no. change it, but but just to be clear, terbutaline is interesting. I mean, when I first started practicing medicine 30 years ago, it was the staple and it's come in and out and in and out. I, I'm curious, uh, Mark, do you use it in your in, in the ICU? Yeah, we use we use um, aminophilin and terbutaline. I just think for simplicity, why not just do the epi drip, the dirty epi drip or a real one pre-hospital and keep it simple. I'm not sure that terbutaline adds anything. I see an interesting comment from Eva that's, that says in peds, we give mag with normal saline bolus together. That's interesting. I think for asthma, sure. Um, that sounds smart. I don't know about an anaphylaxis. I'm not going to comment on it. Uh, Maya, do you have any, any thoughts on these questions? For, um, with respect to magnesium um, in kids, I do often actually give it with a normal saline bolus, but mostly for asthma and also because those kids, if they've been huffing and puffing for a while, actually will have some fluid loss um, from that. So I, I think... Um, I think the thing with the mag is every single thing that you take the time to do um, is also potentially something that you are not doing. So if I'm going to have access, the drug I want running through it is epi. Um, exactly. And focusing on the, all the other things. Um, the more we add, um, sometimes we can lose sight of like the big picture and the things that's most important. And if you have enough yep. hands, maybe, um, but very often we have just enough hands to get what needs to be done, done. So I agree. Really impressive work here. One of my um, phrases is that everything uh, atropine does, epi does better. And I think I would say that about terbutaline in this situation, everything terbutaline could do, epi will do better. So just stick with that in your, in your pre-hospital treatment. We started off where I, where I described the case where, where we had this very similar thing just last Friday and um, I, I could tell you that we, we, we gave almost exactly exact what you guys gave. We ended up not needing the, the CPAP on, on our guy, but we, we, you know, just doing it all on scene, we had to move the, the wheels. And I think that's probably the most important point that I think could be stressed today is the fact that your team was fast. They were calm. They were quick. They actually gave what I call the kitchen sink without having to worry. So if you're on scene and you're not already making that dirty epi, uh, push presser or the epi drip, or you're not pulling out, like David said, the solumedrol, all the other drugs, you know, focus on your priorities, but make sure that you don't delay getting to what's needed here, which is really at the end of the day, epi. Hillary, back to you. Yeah. Uh, the last word was epi. Everyone, epi. That was the last <laughs> word.
I would also urge everyone on this call who's in, in education, if you're standing in front of a classroom or planning courses or you're a training officer, go grab these episodes from YouTube because I know uh, as an educator myself that there are times when uh, I'm not sure what the best way to approach uh, instruction is and uh, it's nice to have someone else who made a video for me um, and you can stop and start it and uh, go through these cases with your students. It's, um, it's an amazing way to get the interaction. And I do have to say one more time to Zach and the folks at Cypress Creek, how, uh, how grateful we are that you are pushing that clinical envelope, that you are using body cam footage to improve and, um, and innovate, and that this QAQI version of body cams um, is something that everyone should consider. Um, and the educational aspect is just outstanding. Um, any last words from anyone? Just thanks everyone um, for learning with us and thanks Peter for taking lead on this and Zach as well and the video is awesome and learning in this way is is the future and uh, I for one can speak for Mark and Peter we're honored to be here and Zach and Hillary we're honored to be here and uh, this is this is joint we're all here together to support each other and learn in this environment and uh, thank you all for being here today. Thanks, David. I tell you what, I learned so much from everybody. I, I would say if you're going to go practice, I think there's one thing we didn't mention, which is um, fluids and how to give it correctly. I mean, we harp on this all the time. Uh, right now, we're very privileged. Obviously, you know, uh, we, we use Mark's device, uh, you know, which I'm a big fan of, no conflict of interest here, but giving fluids in EMS, if, you if you're not practicing that, giving fluids quickly in a hypotensive patient, please do that. And also just go practice making that epi and time yourselves and, 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 and get it done correctly. So, Hey, Peter, I, yeah. I know and people are uh, slipping away here, but and it, we're over time, but there's an interesting question about just the use of body cams and the worries about HIPAA. And I, Zach or Peter, if you guys could address that, it's such a powerful tool. Um, how have you gotten around the HIPAA concerns and uh, how can people overcome them? And David could talk to that too, since that's his, that's his realm. So Zach or David, from all, you know, all the cases on Real DX have informed consent. So we 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 uh, go back and uh, either pro retrospectively or in the moment, if we can, uh, obtain consent from the families and and uh, patients, and they they waive their HIPAA rights. Now on Real DX, we don't we don't publish anything other than the video, but that is. A HIPAA violation if you don't have a, a formal consent process. Zach, talk about how um, how it works for Cypress Creek because that's everyone's number one concern if they're going to start that program. How what is what happens with HIPAA? Yeah, I mean, Hillary, if you want, I know you put a link in there, and then we did a podcast on it that's yep. very extensive to get into it. Uh, but just a brief overview is you've just got to have a good uh, QAQI program. You've got to have the policies and procedures in place. It's just kind of like anything else. Um, if, if you weren't a part of it, you shouldn't be viewing it. We're not posting it, um, you know, everywhere on Facebook or, or whatever. We have patient consent. Uh, and then we do redaction as well when we use it for training purposes. Uh, but it's been a phenomenal tool for us. We've had nothing but success with it. I can tell you we've never had one patient ask us to turn it off. That's amazing. Um, That's amazing. One, Say that, say that again. When you get we've on never stage. had one patient ask us to turn it off. Incredible. And then, you know what's funny? Uh, DX, we've had over a million download, download, you know, views, and we've never had a, wow. a, an agency or a patient 
um, want to take a video off. I, I, it, most most families actually appreciate the opportunity. They say thank you. And thank you for using this for education and are very willing to sign a consent to, to for, for informed consent. Before we get to Rob, real quick, CJ Winkler has an agency outside of Texas that they had a guy who tried to escape the ambulance while it was on the highway. And there was a there was an external camera on the on the street that ended up showing and demonstrating that it had nothing to do with you know that it wasn't the fault of the ambulance company and so that's because of that they recognized having cameras would be to their benefit and they've had cameras for many years and they said that the cameras every single time have spared them any misery than cause them any harm whatsoever so that's just a comment so all right let's go right, everybody. everybody all right thanks for coming everyone thank you love you guys